on the Land of Israel Network. It is eh, December 13th, Monday, December 13th, 2021 is just closing out. And here in Israel, and by the time you hear this, it'll already be the 10th day of Tevet, 5782, one of the minor fast days in the Jewish calendar. This marks the beginning of the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, which ends in about a year and a half later. This starts in minus 588. Ends a year and a half later with the destruction of the first temple in minus 586 and the first exile. Uh, The king at the time is Tzidkiyahu, Zedekiah, who for those of you who listened to last week's podcast when I interviewed Josh Evan Chen and his book, The 36, if you read the book, King Zedekiah, or at least his cave, is mentioned in there also. So we have some kind of Zedekiah theme going on. I'm not sure what it is, but I just thought it was interesting to mention. Um, And speaking of kings and of the Bible, I was supposed to go to Bethlehem tomorrow. First time there in probably 30 years since the peace process destroyed coexistence and since Jews were forbidden to go into one of our really dear um, biblical cities, of course, where David was born. I'm looking out of my dining room window right now, and I can actually see the lights of Bethlehem. It's literally on the next hill. Haven't been there in a long time, though, of course, because the Palestinian Authority controls it, and was really excited. There was a group of tour guides who got permission from the army. We were going to go in and uh, and visit a lot of the sites um, and, and be prepared to guide tourists there. Israeli tour guides are allowed to guide in Jericho and Bethlehem, of all the cities that the Palestinian Authority controls uh, with special permission. Anyway, since I hadn't been there a long time, I really wanted to go in and I was so excited. Um, But because they seem to have some penchant uh, especially this week, but not only for internecine violence in the Arab communities. Uh, it was called off today because apparently Fatah and Hamas had some kind of rumble yesterday, and the IDF commander of the area was not comfortable about sending Israeli tour guides in there tomorrow. So I had a feeling that was going to happen. Um, and so that has been postponed, and that was disappointing, but um, we've got to listen to the security and uh, and have to go in at another time. And speaking of tour guiding, some of you might have heard there was a big demonstration at the airport today of tour guides. I wasn't able to go, but hundreds of other tour guides did. Um, people are not very happy with the finance minister's comment yesterday, although he walked it back to some degree today, um, that tour guides and people in the tourist industry are going to have to retrain and find new professions. Um, It has been, I don't think he realizes, and maybe now he realizes it, that for most of us, it's not just a job, it's a vocation. It's a way of expressing our love for the Jewish people, for the land of Israel. We are tremendous ambassadors for this country. And I know that when I go traveling and I take another tour guide in another country, because I realize the importance of having a local explain things to me, and I say that I'm an Israeli tour guide, they say, wow, Israeli tour, not me personally, Israeli tour guides, you guys know your stuff. It's so amazing. We just have a tremendous tremendous reputation, and there's a lot to know. And so people were kind of uh, upset with him for that callous statement. And it might be true. And there are already people in the tour guide industry who have to feed their children and who have had to go and take different jobs over the last couple of years. But a little empathy would have been nice and, um, and an understanding that one day the tourists will come back. It's not like this is a profession that is down and out. Um, it is uh, just one that is kind of in abeyance because of a pandemic. 
And so uh, people were not upset with him. And I think, you know, public servants have to also understand that when they speak, sometimes we're listening and that words words can hurt. And, and it made a very bad situation even worse. So um, I'm glad he apologized. And hopefully, we will figure this out. I know that I had four days of guiding booked for next week. And then because every single week we seem to have a new closure or a new decision, and I'm not really sure what it's based on. Um, I want Israelis to stay healthy, and I understand that we have to be careful and we let into the country and people have to be vaccinated or go into quarantine. I get all that. Um, but it seems like what's happening right now is maybe a little too, I don't know, we're not, it's not really clear how bad this last variant is and if it was um, the right thing to do. Again, I don't have all the information. I'm just speaking as someone who's like super disappointed to have to uh, cancel next week as are, of course, the people that were coming who hadn't been to Israel in a long time and were super excited about touring. So um, I hope that whoever the powers that be who make decisions are, are doing it from for the right reasons and, and for all of us and that we get back to something um, resembling normal in the near future. But in the meantime, I'm very happy to have a guest this evening, um, Pamela Braun-Cohen, who is the author of a book called Hidden Heroes, One Woman's Story of Resistance and Rescue in the Soviet Union. I know uh, many of you have heard, of course, about what happened, the, this whole movement of Soviet Jewry, and we now have... I think well over a million Israelis who come from the former Soviet Union who have added tremendously to life here in Israel. And uh, it didn't just happen, though. There was uh, there were a lot of really good people who worked, unsung heroes, who worked for a long time to make this happen. And uh, Pamela, thank you so much for joining me here this evening and for writing this book. I just want to give a little intro uh, to you. Haunted by the legacy of the Holocaust, Pamela Braun-Cohen became an activist in the Soviet jury movement in the early 1970s. She served as co-chair of Chicago Action for Soviet Jury. She is now in Chicago, even though she spends a lot of time in Jerusalem, but is in Chicago right now, um, from 1978 to 1986, where she became the national president of the Union of Councils for Soviet Jews. Her leadership role took her to the halls of Congress, the White House, and on frequent trips to the Soviet Union. She received the Humanitarian Award from the Raoul Wallenberg Committee of Chicago, the Medal of Honor from Refuseniks, and a Doctor of Humane Letters degree from Spurtis College of Judaica, lives in Chicago with her husband. They divide their time between family in the United States and their home in Jerusalem. So I would much rather, Pamela, be having this interview with you over a cup of coffee in a nice shop, in a nice place in Jerusalem, but we're going to have to do this for now. And thank you so much for joining me here on, uh, on Rejuvenation. Thank you, Eve. Thank you for having me. So tell us, like, uh, I mean, how long did it take you to write this book? Because you started doing this in the 1970s. And I imagine in the er when you started, did you have any idea how far this was going to go? I, I had I had no idea from one day to the next what was going to happen. I certainly couldn't have told you what happened, what would happen to the movement, what would happen to the work we were doing. I, I couldn't predict anything. Um, I started reading the book, writing the book after I retired in 19 or stepped down in 1996. And I wrote for five years. Um, and I, I could not write about myself. I, I wrote until uh, the history of the Soviet Jewry movement, starting really from the czars the, and even earlier. Um, but when I became president, I, I couldn't avoid using the first 
person pronoun I, and I just, I just couldn't write. Um, so I put it away. And um, about five years ago, I looked around and I saw, I recognized that all the people whose shoulders on, on whose shoulders I was standing, people really who had really started the grassroots movement and who had led the movement uh, before me had passed away. And that I was absolutely the last person in, the, in America or really in the free world who did the kind of work we did that operated inside the Soviet Union as mm -hmm. partners with Soviet Jews. I was the last man to, or woman who could tell the story. <laughs> and so I just got some advice from someone that said, you know, use the collective eye when you're writing. It's not about mm -hmm. you. I felt very strongly about that. And uh, I fit, uh, it took me about another five years. And, and here we go. Here we go. Yeah. And I'm not sure that everybody realizes that there are some uh, major opinions of people who would know that the Soviet Jewry movement was a major force in the collapse to a great degree of the Soviet Union. Yeah, there's no question. There's no question. I mean, it, there's no question in our minds because it was the Soviet Jewry movement, the activists, especially the grassroots activists in the West, mm -hmm. um, who insisted and fought for every letter to be delivered. You know, we, we forget today that the Soviet Union was like what we know as Korea, North Korea now, right. uh, impenetrable borders. Um, and when Avital Sharansky's brother, may he rest in peace, Misha Stiglux, came and spoke, we brought him to Chicago and he spoke, he chastised us and he said, how do you expect to get one prisoner out of Siberia if you can't get one letter delivered to the Soviet Union? And so we fought for, for, for penetrating the borders through mail, through telephones and in the book, there's a, a very interesting story about how we constructed messenger telephone calls um, because people couldn't get phone calls, refuseniks couldn't get them in there, uh, wouldn't accept phone calls in their apartment or they lines would be cut. But the 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 pen, and sending tourists, whatever we did to 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 crack um, the isolation of. Jews in the Soviet Union, refuseniks in the Soviet Union, really served as the first cracks in the in the Kremlin, in the in the in the Soviet structure, and that those cracks, in fact, brought down, you know, later the the Kremlin. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And you had Jackson Vanek. For those of you who are not familiar with the term, refuseniks are. Jew, Jews, I would imagine, all Jews, who have applied to um, move from the Soviet Union to Israel specifically or just to leave the Soviet Union was, and were refused yeah, it was by the government. Yeah. Uh, can I give a little background? I'd like to please, start please with a little do. background. So, I mean, I think most of your listeners rec recognize the anti-Semitism that existed during the Tsar's um, and form really the history of the Soviet of what was mm -hmm. Russia, the Soviet Union, which continued under uh, under the Bolshevik and during the Bolshevik Revolution, and then intensified under Stalin, um, in which he 
finish the purge of Jewish culture, Jewish religion, right. and, 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 and annihilated the, the, the Jewish writers, really crippling Jewish culture finally in the Soviet Union. And mm-hmm. there was during those years after Stalin, there was no contact between Jews in Russia and Jews in the new state of Israel. There was no contact between Jews in Russia and, and I'm using the term Russia right. as, as meaning the Soviet Union mm-hmm. um, and Jews in the West. And what what and even East Berlin, for example. I mean, you could go into Germany into Berlin, and there was the Berlin Wall, and the people on the other side were trapped. And yeah. and, this, and the Soviets uh, and Jews, who we estimated at the time to be between three and five million Jews, mm-hmm. um, which was much less than actually there that they we really found out later that there were after things started opening up and we really could see the extent of how many Jews there were, those Jews had no, no contact with the West and the, and, and they had no opportunity to, to formulate, form Jewish community, either in organizations, there was no such thing, Jewish organizations or synagogues. It was all KGB controlled. Um, the big, the, I think this, the, 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 the change started in 67 in 67, the six day war was propagandized in the Soviet Union on state TV as a, as a major defeat for Israel. And they showed pictures of what they how described as Israeli soldiers, you know, um, going AWOL and abandoning their posts and, and, and fleeing. And Jews in the Soviet Union uh, could read, could read a very expert right. reading between the lines. And what they saw were what they perceived, even in the negative anti-Semitic TV, was were the Jewish soldiers, soldiers mm-hmm. fighting right. for a homeland. Now, I have a friend that went in 1967 to a, a physicist's home and she saw a book on the on his shelf. And she said, "What? What? What's that language?" Mm-hmm. He said, in Russia. In Russia, actually, yeah, it was in mm-hmm. Siberia. And he said, "It's the language of your people. It's Hebrew. There was no knowledge of Hebrew of Jew of a wow. of a Jewish homeland. It's mm-hmm. hard for us to imagine today. But that one seminal um, TV program and, and media blitz, um, which was backfired, totally." Yeah, Jews started to Jews in especially places like Riga, which there was still some Jewish identity left. Mm-hmm. Um, they started to apply for permission. They found people, old men, especially who were um, uh, grandfathers who could remember a, a little bit of Hebrew. And by word by word, they taught themselves Hebrew and they plan to leave for Israel, although there was no opportunity to do so, they were refused permission. And from Mm -hmm. 1867 until 1970, there were like underground cells in in Riga and in in Leningrad um, that were burning with this idea of Aliyah. Um, And with no option, and with no under, recognizing that 
Jews in the West and the Jews in Israel had no concept of what was happening to them in the Soviet Union. Right. It's twin, this twin policy of Jew hatred and cultural religious genocide. So mm-hmm. there's no way to leave, no way to live. And a group of people decided that they were going to, that was Messiris Nefesh. They were going to take an airplane from the Soviet Union and fly it from Leningrad to Sweden in order to demonstrate to the West what their plight was. Known as the Leningrad trials, they were all uh, the, the defendants were all Silva Zalmanson, the only woman. I interviewed her and her daughter. She lives here in Ashkelon um, a couple of years ago. For my listeners who remember, we we spoke about that. Her daughter put out a beautiful film about her parents. Yes, she did. Um, and I wore Silva Zalmanson's bracelet. bracelet because many of us in the states were had the name of a refusing on a bracelet, and we wore I wore it until she was freed. So I felt a connection to her. And I interviewed, I found her a couple of years ago. She's a phenomenal artist. I don't know if you've seen any of her work. Outstanding. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. So that was, that's pretty amazing. They were all arrested on the tarmac. Two of them were given death sentences. But there was, uh, the the news was uh, broadcast on national broadcasting in in America and England and Italy. And they many Jews took to the streets. The grassroots movement in, were in the West was born. And in, and in the Soviet Union, these Jews who could, uh, Jews all over the Soviet Union, little by little started to uh, uh, apply for permission to emigrate. And so within the Soviet Union and outside the Soviet Union, support for the Leningrad trial defendants um, which eventuated in, it was in two trials. And although two were given the death penalty, um, they were ultimately uh, mm-hmm. uh, commuted Released. and, and right. given long de- death pre- uh, pr- prison sentences, of course, um, among them was Joseph Mendelevich. Right. Um, now let's remember though, because I think we've become also used to this, this is before internet Yes. And before cell phones and before Zoom and before all the communication that we all just take for granted that you can within half a second be in touch with somebody on the other side of the world or get news, whether it's true or not, is irrelevant. So a lot of just passing the information around must have been much more challenging it than it would have been today. Extremely difficult from from the first until the end of the movement to to. Um, receive information and to distribute it. Um, at the beginning, from the beginning of the 70s, we made contact, American Jews made contact with um, with with Jews in the Soviet Union. We were able to get contact from, peop- from people who knew the arrested uh, defendants. And little by little, we began to build underground information channels mm-hmm. through by sending people shlichim, by sending well brief emissaries, people, very mm-hmm. very well be brief people. I mean, we we at Chicago Action, we if you we if we sent somebody to the Soviet Union, we would they would have to spend seventeen hours in briefings. They would have to know Cyrillic. They would know have to know the history really? of every single person that they would have to see. 
They would have to know the specific questions to ask each person and be able to memorize the answers to take back to us. Because yeah, So let me ask, maybe this is a foolish question. Why did the officials of the Soviet Union let these people in? Because they were able to follow them, like the KGB, and get more information about where they were going to? I mean, how, why didn't they just stop these emissaries from coming in? It's a great question. A great question. The, the, there, are, there were a number of reasons they tried to. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the ways they tried to is why we kept information about our people who were going very secret was that if the Soviets knew that they weren't going for tourist purposes, they wouldn't give them a visa. So one thing, you just didn't get a visa. Okay. Other times they would just try to stop it by intimidating the tourists. So, you know, if you, if you, if you're in the Soviet Union and you're one of our tourists and you get intimidated by KGB, you're going to come back and you're going to tell people don't go. It's dangerous. It's scary. Sure. But sure. we, we, our tourists were briefed to, to be very, very tough. We understood the Soviet mentality. And one of the reasons that they didn't want to clamp down on America is that we did, America had a role to play the Soviet bilateral relations played a very influential Mm -hmm. role with the Soviet Union. Don't forget, in the background of the Soviet Jewry movement and the immigration movement, the Jewish national movement, there were, um, you had Soviet leaders from Khrushchev on that were building nuclear arsenals. America wanted nuclear disarmament talks. We wanted to be able to hold the Soviet Union culpable uh, and hold their feet to the fire on developing nuclear arms. And the United and the Soviet Union also wanted um, economic benefits. Sure. So for them to arrest one or to hassle some Jew from Chicago or right. Island, it, it wasn't worth it wasn't worth uh, jeopardizing U.S. Soviet relations. And if they thought they can get away with it, which is why we, it was a game. They mm-hmm. knew what we were doing. We knew that they knew what we were doing. Right. But there were certain rules of the game. And that was if you were going to the Soviet Union, you had to know what you were doing. You had to know that it was absolutely dangerous, legal, legal yeah. not mm-hmm. dangerous, that the that the, the danger would be to the refuse stick, not mm-hmm. to the American citizen. As my partner who used to brief people in Chicago used to say to a, nervous Americans that were going, if we sent somebody she, notoriously to one of the rabbis, she said, don't be nervous and don't be worried. If anything happens to you, we could always get another tourist. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> okay. Our concern was not the tourists. We were going to bring right. you. You're an American citizen with an American passport. But if right. you don't can play the game right and don't conduct yourself right, the person that you're going to see could be arrested and he or, or she could be sent to Siberia. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, it was, it was a very important tool for us for two reasons, Eve. First of all, it it provided Soviet Jews uh, refusedics. And I want to go back uh, to tell you what that life was like for them. Because mm-hmm. once they apply, once a refusedic applied for permission, there were, it was a, uh, a maze, a labyrinth of, of right. uh, 
requirements that you had a uh, refused day had to go through. You had to notify your boss. Your it, it many times it was a head of a um, laboratory or uh, you at, at a, a factory, and mm-hmm. you were going. Your application said you were going to Israel. Israel was the anti-Soviet state, the state that the Soviets were propagandizing as being Zionist anti-Soviet. You were mm-hmm. going to an enemy ent- entity. And once you applied and you applied to your, 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 your superior, you were fired from your job. You had to notify the apartment um, manager where you were living Everybody in the apartment building knew that you were a, a, a more or less anti-Soviet. You were like a, tra- a traitor. You were a yeah. traitor, and your kids were fi- were thrown out of school. You you became an economic, political, and social pariah. Mm-hmm. You no longer had an income, so you started selling your drapes on the black market maybe your rugs, everything that you had in order to support your family. You tried to get a job, but they wouldn't hire you because KGB made it known who you were. So, you know, scientists became elevator operators and street cleaners and completely isolated from whatever, found found other refuseniks, but became reliant on the West and on Jews in the West to become partners in their advocacy. So what our organization, what did we, we developed a grassroots movement, not an organization, it was a strike force to develop a partnership with the leaderships of the movement. And we um, couldn't communicate openly with, uh, by telephone and mail was censored, phone calls were censored, there was no, but what we could do was to provide them with tourists, these these emissary mm-hmm. who were extremely well briefed. They were basically our proxies and they would come back from the from the Soviet Union after meeting with refuseniks day in and day out and in as many cities as they could go to. And they came back and provided us with the information that we needed Um and that they needed to get to Israel to said have invitations sent, which would be the first step of the immigration process. Um, Were they able to bring them money so that if they'd lost their job? Money. That- money would be no, but what okay. we did was we raised money in order to send hard goods like very mm-hmm. expensive Nikon cameras that they could sell on the black uh. market. And so we fought, we subsidized the prisoner movement. We subsidized the refusenik movement, um, and um, you know by doing that. And so our 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 tourists not only provided partnership, developing our partners with them, but they also came back on fire. These these tourists came back and they wanted to talk about the refusniks. They were the refusniks were Russian Jews were East. Jews from the Soviet Union, who I called hidden heroes. They were people with enormous stature and moral courage in the face of every possible unknown and threat by the government, by the Kremlin, to themselves, their wives, their children, their safety, their future. And yet they in they 
they exhibited this, this tenacious moral fiber by believing that standing tall and saying, I'm no longer homo sovieticus. I'm no longer a Soviet man. I've been raised my whole life to be a proud Soviet man. And now I've been stripped of everything. Who am I? And they began to they began to go on a, on a mission to find identity. And what they found was their Jewish identity. They mm-hmm. found their ties to their people. They found their ties to their land and to the Hebrew language. And they developed underground networks like Yuli Edelstein, who was head of your Knesset, who right. was a, he, an underground, uh, underground is, is unofficial is a better word. Um, because the Soviets wouldn't legitimize the language, refused to legitimize. It was an anti-Soviet language. It was the only language among over 70 languages in the Soviet Union was considered illegal and anti-Soviet. Uh, but they developed underground um, cells to teach Hebrew to other people, word by word, letter by letter. And they began to teach Hebrew. People began to develop um, Hebrew tarboot, self-published uh, materials. Culture. On, mm-hmm. on culture, in on history, on religion. People started to learning and teaching seminars like Yevgeny Lane and, and Grisha Wasserman and, and in, in Leningrad. And there was an underground, for, for those of us who came from America, we found an underground, thriving, illegal Jewish culture, Jewish activism, Jewish life that was greater than anything that we could see in America. Wow, were, that's quite a statement. It, they were incredible, incredible leaders. They influenced us and we developed a partnership with them. So we developed it wasn't a question that we were doing chesed or if it was a philanthropic program. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. weren't working through largesse. We were working because of what our families, our parents didn't do for the Jews sitting in Berlin and in Poland. And we felt it was our- In the 1930s and 40s during the Holocaust. Totally. Mm-hmm. And that it was our obligation now that we had a chance to- to, to rectify that stain on, 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 on the West and on the Jewish American West. Um, and so we developed- Is that what personally inspired you? Because, you know, you're, you're very right in how you opened this show by saying you don't like the word I, because you spent the last few minutes talking about the other heroes in this whole movement without it all touching on- how you, who presumably had other things going on in your life and didn't need to get involved with this, is somehow woken up to the fact that you, you, want, you want to do this and you didn't have to. So I want to get to the I just for a minute. I know it's going to make you uncomfortable, but I think many of us, definitely myself, and I'm sure most of my listeners, have times in their life where they are presented with an opportunity that means going beyond themselves, perhaps rectifying something that happened in the past, perhaps just taking an opportunity that won't be recognized in order to do something that's right. 
Um, so if you don't mind, just telling us a little bit, because we all need to be inspired. Um, and we all have these moments of like, oh, I'm just tired and let somebody else do it. It's really easy to say, let somebody else do it. But you didn't let somebody else do it. Natalie. Why? Okay. So this is a big admission, but you're such a good interviewer. <laughs> you've laid open <laughs> something that I'll share. I was young. I was a young mother living the good life with three great kids and the most wonderful husband in the world. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we, we were comfortable. We weren't, I wasn't worried. I didn't have to go to work. I wasn't worried about where the next meal was coming from. Um, uh, we, we weren't, we weren't wealthy, but we certainly, I, I didn't have to go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very happy reading to the kids and baking cookies. That was fine. I was very anxious. I I was not confident. I had none of the qualities, none of the qualities, and this is not out of humility. It is an honest assessment. When I look back at the woman who I wrote about when she was young, I had none of the qualities that you would think of somebody doing who did what I did. None. Yeah. I, I, I just had no alternative. I, I I remember when I wanted to announce a meeting at my house at the age of like 32 years old, I literally wrote down my address at the time. My own <laughs> I, I, I just, I was afraid I was going to blank. I was afraid. I just, I, I didn't want the attention on me. I didn't like people looking at me. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Um, I, I, I had no, uh, I, I, we, we were going to have to raise our own funds at Chicago Action to send tourists to make phone calls. Mm-hmm. I wasn't connected to the wealthy, famous establishment. Right. I didn't know where that money was going to come from. I had to do whatever I did to raise the money. I, 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 I just, I, I wasn't a, a leader by nature. I was happy to be behind the scenes. But it was, it was, there was just no one else. If, if not, it was actually, if not me, who? It was, I had no, it was almost as if I had no choice. I had to, whatever I did, I did because I had to. And um, I was, I've had a lot of young women who've read the book uh, the, the, come up to me and say that, it, it was an unattended consequence of the book because the hidden heroes do not refer to us in America. Right. The hidden heroes refer refer to the Soviet Jews. Um, and I want, uh, and yet I've had young women come up to me and say, you know what? It was really interesting to see that somebody without so many talents, you know, as a young person could do what you did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's really the truth. I mean, I, I think that y- sometimes you are decisions you make and the job you do and what you learn forges you. It makes you. I, I was the product of, 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 the, of people of the Soviet Union, and I felt, I felt their weight on my shoulders. I, I mean, my phone rang for years 
you know, at two o'clock in the morning um, because I would be getting a call from Israel or the Soviet Union that somebody was arrested. And at two o'clock in the morning, you know, it was uh, early. It was it was in the morning in London. So I could make phone calls to get the, our people in London mobilized. So it was, it was, I was on call at those days, it was 24 mm-hmm. seven. Um, but the, the hidden heroes are, were those people in the Soviet Union was one thing that, that kind of, I, 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 I do want to point out, I've had many ex- times where people have said, when they're talking about modern Israel today and the influx of Jews from South America and France and America and, and, and the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union emigration, the Aliyah from the Soviet Union cannot be put in a string of Aliyahs. It no. is its own, its own category. Right. Anytime you, we see someone from the Soviet Union who is first generation, those people walked out naked. Mm-hmm. They walked out with what they had in their pockets. They gave up lives where they were at, at the before they applied that had um, was the result of years of study mm-hmm. in their fields, doctors. Um, they gave up. I mean, what they gave up, they gave up because they couldn't live as Jews and they couldn't um, live a Jewish life there. And they saw that this was the future. But they I. I one of my friends, when her parents died, couldn't go back to the funeral. You couldn't get a, a visa to go back. Mm-hmm. You you couldn't go to the cemetery. Um, if parents were sick, you couldn't go back to see them. It it was a, it was a one way ticket, and that ticket was paid for by years like Mark Dimschitz, by years in in a, in a hard labor camp. It was a ticket that was paid for, like Yulia Kasharovsky, may he rest in peace, with 17 years in refusal. 17 years. Um, and you didn't know, it, 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 it was a, a sentence. It, it, when you went to prison, you were given a three-year sentence. It was horrible, a, 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 a sentence for you know, five years in exile, like the slate packs. But when you were refused permission, it was a sentence without end. You didn't mm-hmm. know where it would end or when it would end. So. Right. I mean, we in hindsight now know what happened. Yes. And there were and there were people who came out and look, no Aliyah, no group of people is going to be um, all the same, you know, a monolithic group, and certain people who came, certain people who later on came out once it was easy to come out, just kind of came to Israel as a means of getting out of the Soviet Union, and then went on to the United States or other places. I mean, you know, as with every group. Yes. But the people that you're talking about now, the ones who really suffered, I, I don't think any of us can imagine what Lefertovo prison was like, or any of these places exactly. were, were you know, hell on earth, at, without knowing. And Without knowing people, that it would pay out, and these people forge the movement. Mm-hmm. That was um, what you said. What you said, you know, you believe that uh, that the Soviet Jewry movement um, ultimately brought down the Kremlin. We was definitely a factor. It was yeah. definitely a factor. It was. Yeah. It was. It was. It, it as I always say, it was the first crack. 
It mm-hmm. made the cracks. Um, and you also had politicians, people like Scoop Jackson, though, who were hugely important huge, in, in legislation huge. and just did not give up huge. either. And non non Jews who really felt that this was. Uh, it was a pic- it, it didn't matter the religion. I mean, this was an, uh, you know an abomination against humanity. And what you know, the Soviet Union was of, doing. This was what we did. Once we formed a partnership, we took the platforms and the positions of the refuseniks, and we brought them to the Congress. Mm-hmm. And they wanted that in, in the form of Jackson Vanek in 1974 right. was a um, um, the the Trade Act. That that tied immigration, Jewish immigration, to most favored nation trade credits, which the Soviets mm-hmm. wanted badly. Desperately, um, yeah. And every time there was a a, a call to to uh, waive the amendment over the last over the next 15, 20 years, we we would canvass the refusniks, and they would tell us, "No, not yet." Tied mm-hmm. to what these were the these are the these are the um, the benchmarks that we have to to meet before we're going to advocate that we took it to the State Department we um, we developed a congressional human rights caucus in the House every 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 State Department head all of them the heads of the State Department to some extent vote you know pushed for Soviet juries we we in the West the grassroots movement um, made Soviet Jewry a fundamental part of U.S. Soviet relations it was on the front burner there was no meeting between a Soviet uh, premier and American president where the issue of Soviet Jewry was and and prisoners like Sharansky and the pris- and the refusenik lists that we compiled um, were not presented to the Soviets. Uh, the mm-hmm. Soviets knew that this was something that was America wanted, and there was and 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 they opened the gates only because there was no other alternative. Um, at some point, there was just they had no other alternative. Mm-hmm. In addition to the United States, though, the, if the, from the United Kingdom, right? I mean, there were other Margaret there Thatcher were other was, countries. Yes, I mean, at the at the uh, they all yes, and in fact, we um, there was a uh, there's a our our colleagues in London, the thirty five mm-hmm. the thirty five right. Soviet Jewry were also a grassroots movement, meaning that that was not governments and not a government organization. Uh, we were all uh, independent, um, and the thirty fives were very influential in the in the British Parliament. Um, there were parliamentarians that also went to the Soviet Union, like our congressman we briefed that went to the Soviet Union, and they they also fought for um, mm-hmm. the issue. We we enli- we enlisted even the communist Italian party. To work on wow. the Soviet Jews, any group, any group of people, we enlisted the physicists because so many of our refusenets were physicists, and um, we, and we worked across, as you suggested, we worked across the aisle. It wasn't just a question of 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 uh, Jewish and Christian; it was Republicans and Democrats. Everybody, it 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 was everybody's. We made it an issue for every of uh, human rights official, yeah, right of human rights. How about the Israeli government? How did they fit in here? 
The Israeli government had their own agenda. Don't forget, mm -hmm. they were not as as in as it. The position that the Israeli had with the Soviets was much was very complicated. Um, but first of all, the Soviets were arming the the their Arab neighbors. Yes, Egypt and Syria, Egypt especially, and Syria. but not only. Mm -hmm. I remember when one time when we were in the Soviet Union, uh, we saw Palestinians who, and this was in the seventies, that I know were being trained in the Soviet in in the right. Soviet Union. Um, so Israel had its national security issues that they right. had to deal with. They also did not have direct relations with the Soviet Union, um, and they tried to establish. Uh, relations with refuseniks, but they had, they were, it was more complicated. They were balancing more issues. And we felt in the United States that America was in a much stronger position to, um, to handle the Soviet Jewry issue um, without making any unnecessary concessions to the Soviets without a, a, a commensurate quid pro quo. We, mm -hmm. you know, Israel did not have that 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 yeah the political weight that it yeah. might have now just as an interesting historical fact the soviet union actually voted for the partition plan they were one of the countries that voted in november 29th 1947 and it's a very interesting question why they did that and i mean the answer that i find most reasonable although i'm sure there's a lot of information that we don't have is that they were hoping that this little fledgling country would be a communist outpost Absolutely. in the middle east i mean you had the kibbutz movement which was very Absolutely. much a reflection of communism. They celebrated May Day in Israel until not so long ago. Yes. You had a communist party. And so initially the Soviets felt that that was going to happen. And when it turns into a democracy, um, then the Soviets are unhappy right. and things change. But, um, but initially when you look at the map and when I you know, take people to, the, to Independence Hall in Tel Aviv and we discuss that huge vote um, on that day, the question always comes up. Why you would not expect the Soviet Union to have voted for the creation of a Jewish state. And yet and they so did. Were, and it was a huge thing at the time. Yes, it was huge. And there was a lot of, I mean, I've talked to people in Israel, there was a tremendous amount of admiration for Stalin and for the, and, and, <laughs> and, and for Russia. Um, mm -hmm. That it was, yeah, it was many of the, of the first settlers were, were very Bolshevik in their mentality. So absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the the people who found the state are not uh, people from New York. <laughs> Nobody, I mean, that's, you know, it's people from, from Eastern Europe, from Poland and yes. from what becomes, you know, and from Russia. Absolutely. And that was their culture um, and their connection. So, yeah, it's definitely an interest. It's interesting what's happening here in Israel in the 1970s and the 1980s. And it's it was hugely important that the grassroots movements that you're describing came from the the countries that did have that kind of power and sway in the world. And, and um, the one the thing is, is that the grassroots movement, it, it started very, very small. Um, but ultimately, it, 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 what it did, it was operating um, not within the establishment in America, and not with mm -hmm. his, but it set a precedent, we set a precedent, we set the bar because we were with working because our voices 
were authentic because they only represented Jews of the Soviet Union who were setting the agenda, we had a kind of moral base that nobody else had. It wasn't what was in the interest of America, although it happened to be in the interest of America. It was mm-hmm. what was in the interest of Soviet Jews. So it was a question of like, like we're coming from Hanukkah, the small against the many, but right. we, but we really did set a bar and we pushed the Israeli government and we pushed the establishment. Um, and it was, it, it was a very necessary part of history. There's, there, I, I urge people to read the book for many reasons, not only because we, this, this is the, we don't have Jewish heroes today. Our kids don't have Jewish heroes today. Our grandchildren, you know, don't have Jewish heroes today. These are really Jewish heroes in our own time. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, one story. The second story is the importance of the movement itself and its and the importance of how it functions can function in history. It is the only mass rescue in our you're a historian, you read history. Mm-hmm. It's the only mass rescue of our people in 2000 years, no matter what we were set against. And when you think, I mean, these the 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 uh, men the who were running the Kremlin were brutal and right. they were brutal. They would stop at nothing to squish Jewish life and to, and, and to stop it. And yet we were able to conduct a mass rescue, open the doors for millions of Jews. And I, I personally believe that, and I didn't realize it at the time. And when you said, could you see the consequences? I, I, there was no way I could have seen the consequences of what we were doing when we were sitting in our office and we got you know news that Joseph Begun, after three terms of prison for teaching Hebrew, finally got permission and is in Israel today. I mean, we would have like four minutes of celebration and then our then the, we would look at the next person that we needed to get out. And at that time, we were overwhelmed with cases and names and 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 tragedies and catastrophes and 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 pain. And we felt the pain. So we really couldn't we couldn't visualize what was going to happen. And it was only at the end when I was writing the final chapters of the book that I realized, I don't know, maybe it was right after Tishabov, may have been, that I, I, I all of a sudden I realized that we were, as a people, it has been told to us that we were exiled after the uh, Second Temple for our baseless hatred. Right. And then all of a sudden I realized, wow, look, look what happened. What happened because of baseless love? <laughs> there was between the grassroots leader movement and Jews in the Soviet Union, an absolute baseless love. The love that my colleagues, by people that I work with, people that I enlisted and sent to Russia, the love that they had for a Lev Furman or for a, I don't know, a, 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 I can name all the names, hundreds of names. They would remember their addresses. Uh, Harvey Barnett's love, Harvey Barnett, one of our activists, granddaughter was in Israel and was, and was visiting with a friend of theirs 
who he had met in Kiev. It, it, this love has gone already gone generations between American Jews and the former Refuseniks. Mm -hmm. um, Michael Albert's wife uh, was a former prisoner himself. Um, that baseless, if I know that I could have at some point, I always say this, and I've said it for 20 years, if I would have gone to one of people particularly that I'm thinking of and said, you know what, I could buy Yevgeny Lane out. I need you to, I need, you know, $40,000. Can you put a second mortgage on your house? I'm telling you with confidence, they would have done it. Wow. Wow. That was That's love. amazing. If, if we could just, you know, today, I think the lesson is, and I think one of the lessons, I think there's some lessons in the history that are expressed in the book. And that is that if we could just chop off all of our exterior veneers and political ideas and just get down to each other's pain and, and what we're try they're trying to do, and um, especially in Israel, uh, but with American Jews and, and Israel and is, people living in Israel, Israelis, I think we can accomplish the same thing. I remember thinking during all the intifadas, do Americans feel the pain of people who are locked in a frat because the tunnels have been, you know, closed? Do you feel what that feels like? Feel like you're locked in or feeling like you're afraid? Maybe, you know, you're going to wear a backpack because you don't know when you're going to get a knife in your back. I mean, mm -hmm. do Americans feel that? Um, so I, I think that that's, I think that's one of the messages. And I feel very passionately about it. Mm -hmm. you have no How did your... I, I did notice, and it also occurs to me that I think you still haven't fully realized what you did, even though you wrote the book and you lived it, um, and you've, you've been interviewed. I, I think that somewhere it's still it it's still bigger than you. Um, what you were able to do, as you said, with well, you said no skills, but um, you know, but a lot of faith and a lot of love for her people, and that just propelled you to be something that you never imagined that you could be. How, you said you had small kids when this all started. How, how, did, how did they react? Because, you know, if you're busy with this um, and it's a big part of your life, it changed everything in your house. You know, uh, it's funny because my now one of the spouses of my grandsons asked me, asked, gee, you know, asked, asked her mother-in-law, my daughter, what was that like for you? You know, right. I, I almost, right. I, I have just recently started to feel like, was I a derelict mother? Oh, um, no, that's not what no, I no, meant. No, no, <laughs> no, not because of the question, but I have started thinking about it. Look, um, I, the only answer I, I, I have, first of all, I, I had no other life other than my children, my parents, my family, and Soviet Jews. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember my grandmother once saying to me, come to see me. I'm also a Russian Jew. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, some guilt got thrown oh, in yeah, there. Yeah. Sure. But I, I think that I had, and I wrote about this in the book, mm -hmm. had also a sense that I was raising Josh, our youngest, was in first grade when I moved the office to our neighborhood. Um, so we could, I could commute easily back and forth to the office, but, and I, by the way, I never got paid. I was also a volunteer. Mm -hmm. was, we were all volunteers, but I remember thinking I'm not living 
in Israel. We're not in Israel. And at the time, we weren't living an observant life. I don't know if I was conscious of that or not, actually. But I knew we weren't living in the mainstream of Jewish life. And I wanted my children to realize that Jewish life and the life of Jewish Jews and Jewish history is not what they're seeing in the Chicago suburbs. I really felt that we, my husband and I had a conscious feeling that a decision that we wanted them to see that being Jewish involved a responsibility to peoplehood and that when they had to give up their beds for Sharansky when he came and, uh, and, and people would, you know, they would, God bless the Russians in those years that the Jews would come in and smoking in the kitchen, you right. know, it was okay. And um, I don't know how they felt about it at the time, um, but I can tell you that we've got three exceptional children and I, I don't know. I, I also think, uh, and it would be incomplete. This would be an incomplete story if I didn't tell you about what you said. You're really good, Eve. I must say, you're a marvelous interviewer. Oh, and what you said you. about being it being bigger than you, it also didn't occur to me until the finer years that I began to see that my life had a purpose. And I began, because of the influence of Jews in the Soviet Union, little by little, my husband and I became observant. And we, I began to see that what was happening in my life was not just coincidence. There were so many things that you read about in the book that just could not have happened. And even when I read it about it today, the chances of things happening that happened were so absolutely outrageous that it was it 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 would be like I would be making it up, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I really be believe that that all this love that we had for our people. I, I, I still, I get really get emotional, but I really believe that that had released this, a cosmic force, that it was bigger. It was, you were right. It was bigger than any one of us. It was yes. a, a, a cosmic force that smiled on what we were supposed to do. And we were all playing a role. Um, and I, I think that that's why I cringe when, you know, I, uh, when people think, you know, about me, uh, it's not about me. It's about it's about picking up your role in Jewish history. It's about playing your hand, the the hand that Hakadosh Baruch Hu gave you. It's about what you're doing here, you know, between Sinai and 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 Mashiach. It's what it's what it's what you're putting down. It's what you're leaving, and I think that every single one of us is born. Um, Jews for for um, for their missions, and it could be a little mission, and it, it it you might think it's a little mission at the time, but you don't realize the impact, the 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 cosmic impact that we have. Yeah, oh. um, I'm going to agree with you. Hashem opens doors for all of us. 
If we choose to walk through them, that's our choice. But then things happen that we never could have imagined. Perfect. Uh, I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in many other people's as well. And you, my lady, definitely punched above your weight and did extraordinary things. And I really highly recommend Hidden Heroes, One Woman's Story of Resistance and Rescue in the Soviet Union. And I want to thank you, really, for sharing not just the story of the Hidden Heroes, but, but your own personal journey and um, the lives that you changed. Uh, many, many, as you said, and now it's multi-generational. And the people who were able to, uh, to leave the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union that at some point left itself because of a lot of the work that was done. And, and really, I think that it behooves all of us to think about that and, and the things maybe that we can do that seem like they're little and they're, or they're beyond us or we don't have the skill set for that. But as you said, it can set some cosmic energy out there moving and then, uh, and then it just takes a different kind of a life and a speed. So thank you so much, Pamela Braun-Cohen, for sharing your story with us and uh, to all my listeners uh, near and far for tuning in every week and um, getting to know some of the extraordinary people that really I'm privileged to have contact with and bring out to all of you. So Eve Harrow, uh, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, with thanks to, to Ben and to Tabitha for getting the show out every week. And uh, take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. As the masks are coming off and much of the world is turning not only against Israel, but yes, against the Jewish people, if you feel different, if your love for Israel is growing deeper and stronger, if you're thirsting to cleave to the nation of Israel and to the God of Israel, if you're thirsting to learn authentic Torah from Jews in Judea, then the Land of Israel Fellowship is for you. Hundreds of individuals and families from around the world come together on Zoom every week in what can only be described as a fellowship of love, friendship, of learning and praying and belonging. A fellowship really unlike any other. It's more than just a movement, it's a family. To learn more about the Land of Israel Fellowship, click on www.thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship or send an email to fellowship at thelandofisrael.com. Love and blessings from Judea.